I next met with Dr. Loneal and Farber, and to begin, we came back to the issue of workup, including the International Myeloma Workshop Consensus Guidelines, which were presented recently and should soon be published. Dr. Loneal reviewed the case that led into this issue. This was a case, really, that was focusing on diagnostic workup for a newly diagnosed 55-year-old patient. And this was a patient who all you're really told about is that they have anemia with a hemoglobin of 10, creatinine of 2, albumin of 3.2, and protein found on serum protein electrophoresis. And I think the real thrust of the question is, which of these following tests would you do to further evaluate and get the appropriate baseline workup for this patient? And I think that there are a number of really important tests here that certainly with the new International Myeloma Workshop consensus guidelines are absolute requirements. And I think that those include tests such as chemistries, beta-2 microglobulin, bone marrow aspirate, 24-hour urine collection. Fish studies and bone marrow, I think, are clearly very important. And I think the question that comes up, and my suspicion is the reason why we're seeing a lower number among the practicing oncologists, is what do you do with that fish data? And does it actually impact your decision-making in the initial process? So I understand a little bit of hesitance to proceed with that. You know, it's interesting. A lot of these numbers, you see the fellows a lot closer to investigators. For example, 63% of the docs in practice would do fish, 37% wouldn't. For the fellows and investigators, it's more than 90%. I think, again, if you look at the International Myeloma Workshop consensus guidelines, fish is built into what we consider to be an important part of initial diagnostic workup, as it may help us to decide about maintenance therapy and the absolute benefit of high-dose therapy down the road as well. What about metaphase genetics? I'll tell you, I'm a little surprised that I see a little discordance there as well. I think you can see the investigators were about 85%, whereas 60% for the community oncologist and 92% for fellows. Again, I think I can understand the rationale for not ordering it on everybody, that there's a cost issue. But I think we're starting to understand that patients with metaphase cytogenetic abnormalities really do very differently than patients who don't have abnormalities by routine metaphase. And just to give an example of something I will tell you I've learned in the last two years as I've worked with some of the consensus guidelines groups. If you take a finding such as hyperdiploid, we know that patients with hyperdiploid myeloma by fish actually do quite well, similar to ALL. What's interesting is if you look at patients who are metaphase cytogenetic positive for hyperdiploid, their outcomes are not as good. And so there clearly is a difference between hyperdiploid picked up by fish or hyperdiploid picked up by routine metaphase cytogenetics, and they're very, very different. And so I think that data is actually very important as well. Could you summarize the bottom line that came out of the guidelines? Yeah, the guidelines, which I think will hopefully be submitted for publication very, very soon, really include most of what I think all of us are already doing. Chemistry, CBC, beta-2 microglobulin for staging, serum-free light chain, bone marrow, fish, they don't require more than a skeletal survey as the bone survey, but suggest that an MRI may be clinically a little bit more useful. And interestingly enough, what they don't recommend, and I saw this is another area of discordance here, is the urine-free light chain assay. And as you can see, 10% of clinical investigators recommended that test, as opposed to 52% of practicing oncologists and 40% of fellows. The urine-free light chain is actually not as useful as the serum-free light chain. And in fact, there's a lot of variability in that number and that test itself. So it's really not a test that I think most of us recommend doing routinely. Chuck, what's your response to this? I would agree with most of what Dr. Loneal is saying. Certainly, I perform both 
fish as a matter of routine for newly diagnosed patients. And I think the metaphase cytogenetics is also important because you just don't want to know if it's there. You want to know how much of it's there. And of course, the metaphase cytogenetics is less sensitive. And if it appears on that study, I think it's telling you something different than if it's just there in a very small minority of cells. And it's interesting if you think, Chuck, about a patient going to see three different or four different docs, you could substantiate in this survey that they might get some pretty different answers. Yes. I think one thing that would be fascinating that I think would be of great interest for ASH would be just how the patterns of care are changing rather than just a snapshot in time. This is very different than we would have seen two years ago with these surveys. We were talking about the issue, Sagar, about whether or not anybody in the scientific community would have any interest in this. Just looking at these workup data, do you think that either ASH or any other organization would be interested in seeing it presented? Yeah, I think it does form a useful piece of data, and I think perhaps breaking it down into just what you described, more patients versus fewer patients, or even tracking it over time, as Dr. Farber suggested as well, I think that's really very important because I think it does begin to highlight either the use and importance of things like what you do, educational programs and things, and also about how the field is changing and moving on a yearly basis. And another area that looks like maybe it could use some attention is the issue of staging Can you talk about what was seen here when we asked about stage and what your thoughts are about it? This is an interesting area, and I think that the transition from the Dury-Salmon staging over to the ISS has been really a little bit slower than I would have imagined, and some of that is probably just comfort. People have been using Dury-Salmon since 1973 or 74 or something like that, and if you have bone disease, it makes you stage 3, and so it is relatively straightforward. I think that the ISS staging, and again, what struck me is that, you know, a third of the docs here, 20% of fifth, called this a stage three by ISS, which is not correct. I think it's really just an educational learning curve more than anything else and realizing that the things we used to use are different than the things we use now. What about the fact that it seems like there are a few investigators who thought this was stage three? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. I mean, is there any debate about it? No. It's a number. It's just sometimes it's hard to remember the number. How important is staging? This may seem like an obvious question, but if you can talk about the implications in terms of decision-making. Yeah, I think from my perspective, staging is important because it gives you, you know, patients come in and say, I read on the web that I have myeloma and I'm going to die in two and a half years. And so staging, certainly by the ISS, I think gives us a more recent way to really be able to provide them that data. If a patient is stage one and does not have cytogenetic abnormalities and has a normal fish panel or is hyperdiploid by fish, the median survival of those patients now from some of the more modern series is somewhere between eight and 10 years. These are the patients that Dr. Barlogi in Arkansas will claim that he's curing because they're living for 10 years. And we certainly have a handful of patients that have lived 10 plus years as well who had essentially what you would call ISS stage one. On the other hand, stage 3 is a very aggressive and very different biological disease. And whereas I may be personally less interested in putting a stage 1 patient on maintenance therapy after their transplant, I'm much more interested in putting a stage 3 patient on maintenance because that's a patient that I may be able to get to CR, but I can't necessarily keep them there. And actually, we had another question relating to staging. If you look, we asked about treatment too, so maybe you can go through that. And also, can you bring out the issue of where beta-2 microglobulin fits in. Yeah, so this is a case of a patient who presented again with anemia and an elevated total protein, 
normal calcium and creatinine. Serum protein electrophoresis showed a protein of about 2.2 grams per deciliter with an IgG of about 3,000. Beta-2 in this patient was 3.9. Bone marrow was about 32% plasma cells, and fish and cytogenetics were normal. And in this case, again, it was staged as a stage 2. It looked like there was some concern about stage 1 versus stage 3 in a couple of the groups, perhaps a little bit more in the practicing oncologists than in the investigators, but I think that they're relatively similar. The fellows seem to be at about 78% staged this correctly as stage 2. And so I think that the question about how do you do this is really quite simple. It's a beta-2. The albumin does play a little bit of a role in that. We know that beta-2 is an independent prognostic feature in myeloma, probably one of the most powerful. And I would certainly have argued and will argue in the coming years that beta-2 alone is probably not the optimal way to identify high-risk versus low-risk patients. But it's reproducible, it's cheap, it's doable across multiple continents in the whole world. And so when the International Myeloma Working Group created this new staging system, beta-2 was really the easiest system that fell out that identified three different subsets of patients. I think beta-2 is great for patients who have normal renal function. I think it really segregates out your patients who are destined to do poorly. However, many of these patients have renal insufficiency, and the beta-2 is influenced by that. So for many patients, I find it of limited benefit. Soccer? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And actually, we're asking them to go back and do another analysis. But recall that when they did the 20,000 patient analysis, they actually knew that some of those patients presented with renal insufficiency. And if you take that into account, it still is a prognostic feature. So even though patients with renal insufficiency present with high beta-2s, that in and itself may be a negative prognostic feature in and of itself. Now, if they've got renal insufficiency because of hypertension and they've had it for 30 years, then I think all bets are off. And I think your point is certainly a very good one. What about the management of a patient with these kinds of numbers in terms of the overall strategy? And you see we ask this basically age 55, 70, and 75 with and without adverse cytogenetics. Can you go through that, Sagar? I think it's very interesting to look at, again, based on age. And I think I was the one that wanted to look at how age changed the complexity of this question. I think you can see 55 it's clear that at least half the participants in both groups, actually in all three groups, really would use induction therapy followed by a transplant for this patient with high-risk features. I think that that's a typical standard approach for these patients. Although, again, if you subscribe to the MSMART guidelines, they would tell you these are patients for whom perhaps transplant may not be benefited. And according to the Mayo guidelines, they don't transplant these people. I think as you switch over to an older 70 group, you can see there's a little bit of question about transplant based on response, and about a third of participants in both groups really didn't want to proceed with a transplant in that setting. I think when you get to the over 75 group, there, again, I think I agree with most of these folks, and you can see, again, 80 and 85 percent of physicians didn't want to transplant this patient over 75 and wanted to proceed with systemic therapy, which I think is certainly a very appropriate and reasonable difference here. I think if you look at the poor risk features, which is the last group, you can see there is a little bit of discordance here. 35% of investigators would have transplanted that patient up front, whereas 63% of practicing oncologists would have transplanted that patient early on up front, similar to the fellows numbers. Whereas if you look at induction followed by transplant depending upon response, that changed a little bit, more favoring the clinical investigators. And I think that is, to me, showing a bit of the shift in the pattern. For high-risk patients, I'm not sure that everybody should be transplanted up front, given that the duration of remission may be shorter. And so if you don't get a patient to a CR, a transplant may be a way to do that. 
and then maintain them with a novel agent afterwards. And I think that's what you're seeing in this shift here. It seems like there is a shift, though, in terms of whether people decide right up front they're going to do a transplant as opposed to waiting and seeing what kind of response they get and maybe delaying, particularly, for example, in a young patient. How do you approach that, Sagar? For our approach, it's we treat based on response. So we give everybody an induction regimen du jour, and if they achieve a CR, we collect them and then offer them delayed transplant. If they don't get to a CR, then we transplant them all early on. So that's certainly the second choice is our clinical practice, but that's not a standard at this time point. And so, you know, I think either way is certainly reasonable. I'm curious to see where Dr. Farber weighs in on this. Sure. I think this is one of the situations which has really changed over the last couple of years. In the past, if you had a younger patient or even an older patient who had high-risk disease, you'd think, oh my gosh, this patient's not going to do well. We need to do something drastic, get him to a transplant. Now we're recognizing that patients who go through transplants with high-risk disease don't do terribly well in the short run or long run. And now that we have more agents to manage the individuals up front, those who achieve a good initial response, we tend to delay and hold off that transplant until they fail. So it has gone from being the primary treatment strategy to one that we're holding in reserve for patients who fail the upfront treatments. With the earlier use of Velcade and some of the other agents and combinations, I think autologous transplant has moved a little further back for the high-risk individuals. What fraction of patients, Sagar, in your practice are you able to delay transplant, and how long on average are they delayed? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what our practice is, is to collect everybody after four cycles of therapy. So we really get a sense for where they are. It's not just an M protein number or a urine protein number. It's really a complete evaluation to get a sense for where they are. And if I see By four cycles with one of the new modern regimens, most patients will have had a major response. And if they haven't, in many ways, that's telling me something, that biologically, that I may not be able to get them where I want to get them. An example that I use is I have two or three patients now that received RVD as their initial induction therapy. After four cycles, just barely got to the 50% reduction in their protein. And I thought, oh no, I'm in trouble now. What am I going to do with this guy? I ended up collecting their cells and actually taking them on to tandem transplant because they didn't achieve a VGPR after the first. And both of them are over two years out now, continuing in complete remission, unmaintained. And so I think that, again, it's anecdotal data, but just because you can't get the kind of response you want with your new drugs doesn't mean that you may not get the response you want with your old drugs. And so I think personally of transplant as a treatment modality for a patient with myeloma. I don't think of it as the only treatment modality. And so I think you have to mix treatments and approaches for any given individual. So again, utilizing your regimen du jour, which I know is RVD, Uh roughly what fraction of patients can be delayed going for transplant? On average, how long are they delayed? It's about 50% of patients that probably don't end up going to early transplant. And it's hard to say the median, but I can tell you it's probably right now around two years, somewhere in that ballpark there. But again, it's very, very early in small numbers. So I'd be hesitant to hold that in stone. Chuck, what are your thoughts? My thoughts are that, again, two years ago, my primary goal was to get a patient in some form of remission, not beat up their bone marrow too badly, and get them transplanted. And now these regimens, the triplets, are so active, the response rates are phenomenal. The patients achieve their remission. I try to get them harvested, and then I may give them additional treatment. I try to drag my feet a bit 
about getting them over for the transplant. I'll see how they do. I would consider some degree of maintenance or just observing them after we achieve a remission, sort of like we do for individuals with follicular lymphoma. And then, of course, if they have a rapid recurrence, then I would go ahead and make the referral at that point. Dr. Rajkumar had a really great editorial in Mayo Clinic Proceedings about the issue of going for cure versus palliation saga in this disease. And the question of should we maybe rethink or the fact that the old paradigm of really considering this a palliative situation has to be reconsidered. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, Vincent and I argue about this almost weekly. And I think what you heard from Vincent and what my argument will be, which is on the other side, really reflects that there is no right answer. And so I think that's the first basic premise. I believe that we have the opportunity at some point in the near future and I'm not saying we're there now, to make major inroads in survival for this disease. And to me, that means cure, that we may be able to do that with some of the drugs that we have or some of the drugs that are coming in now. So my goal, again, is to continue to push levels of disease to lower and lower tumor burdens and use new tests to really start to measure that. And I think one of the arguments that the control people always make, control versus cure, is that even patients that achieve a CR relapse. So you're not really curing them even if you get them there. My counterargument to that is that you can't cure a patient until you get them to a CR. So that's the first step. And the second is perhaps we do need more sensitive measures to assess disease burden. And that brings in things like flow cytometric or immunophenotype CR, molecular CR, other things that have really made a big difference in CLL, you know, a similar disease where they have been able to make real impacts by duration of CR. I guess it's always tough when you're kind of in a new stage, when new drugs are coming in, you're just not really sure what the impact's going to be. Chuck, you've been involved with some of our breast cancer education programs. It reminds me a little bit of some of the arguments about management of metastatic breast cancer in terms of, for example, using combination chemotherapy versus sequential single agents and the idea of, since it's, quote, not curable, trying to minimize morbidity. Any thoughts? Yeah, I think very much so. I'm not quite of the mind that there are going to be cures in multiple myeloma quite yet. I think there are individuals who are cured through allogeneic transplants. Of course, I don't think that's really a practical modality for the majority of individuals due to age and other limitations. I think multiple myeloma is almost like the new breast cancer in that the paradigm has gone from we had a limited number of drugs, you hit them up front, and when they relapse, you use those same agents to trying to make this a chronic disease, trying to keep patients around for as long as possible with as good a quality of life. And I think using after induction therapy, trying to get a good remission with minimal residual disease, switching over, considering maintenance therapy where it's not too toxic, and using the agent sequentially in a judicious manner after the initial therapy. And I would agree. I think transplant is one of those modalities that you'd want to use at some point, but it's not the main focus anymore. From my sort of primitive eyes, trying to understand all these different tumors and all the biology that's going on, where this really comes in is selection of initial therapy. And we can actually go to the next case. And I'll ask you, Sagar, to go through this case and getting into the issue from my point of view of whether or not you kind of use all your guns up front in that situation. Yeah, this is a case of a 60-year-old gentleman who presented with severe back pain and compression fractures at L2 and was noted to have multiple lytic lesions. He presented with a hemoglobin of 9, calcium which was slightly elevated, and creatinine of 2, 
was noted to have a IgG lambda of 7 grams per deciliter and a beta 2 of 7.8. 24-hour urine did demonstrate the presence of Benz-Jones proteinuria with about 2 grams of proteinuria, and the bone marrow showed 62% infiltration of cells, and the patient was deletion 13 and 414 positive by FISH analysis. This is a patient that was immediately hospitalized, was hydrated, and given bisphosphonates. And then the question really comes up, how would you approach treatment, initial induction therapy for the 60-year-old patient with stage 3 ISS disease and clearly symptomatic multiple myeloma? I think that the question about single agents versus combinations is certainly a very interesting one. And I think the choices that are brought out here, you can see for the most part there is a prevalence of VTD or RVD or VD being used in this patient population. And my sense is the reason that there is a very strong bortezomib bias in this case, all three of the top choices used bortezomib, probably relates to the fact that this is a patient with high-risk disease and renal insufficiency for whom bortezomib has a fair amount of activity in the upfront setting. I think personally, and again, I think this is an area of some debate, that the advantage of combination therapy in myeloma is that you get synergistic interactions when you put these drugs together. This is not the, as I joke with my lung cancer colleagues, carbo plus taxol, which is one plus one equals a half. This is bortezomib plus an imid, either lenalidomide or thalidomide, where I think it's one plus one is probably three or four, somewhere in that ballpark there. And so I think in a patient with aggressive disease, high tumor burden, has renal insufficiency and risk of progressive renal dysfunction, this is a patient I would treat with triple therapy, and it would be either VTD or RVD in an effort to try and hit them with all three of the most active drugs classes that we have. Chuck? I would echo it. I think that hitting a person with high risk with triple therapy is the correct approach, seeing if you can get to a plateau response or a good initial response, and I would totally agree with that. So the patient received four cycles of ETD and had somewhat of a response with the IgG essentially going from 7 to 3.4 grams per deciliter, so a little bit right at a 50% reduction. The bone marrow plasma cells also decreased from about 62 to 28%, but the patient did develop grade 2 peripheral neuropathy. And so I think then the next question is, what's your next choice? And either to continue the current approach, to switch to a different regimen, or to proceed with stem cell mobilization and transplant. And again, here I think you do see a little bit of discordance among the groups here. I think if you look at the clinical investigators, 80% would have proceeded on to collection and high-dose therapy and transplant, whereas of the practicing oncologist and the fellows, about 45 would have switched over to that approach, and about a third of both the fellows and the practicing oncologist would have switched to a different treatment regimen to try and get further reduction in the tumor burden. I can tell you that my personal preference in this setting is that they've had four cycles of very aggressive and I think appropriate therapy, and in the absence of achieving a major response, which I consider a very good partial remission or better. This is, to me, the exact person who's a good candidate for high-dose therapy. This would be somebody I would want to mobilize, and I would consolidate them with a transplant just in an effort to try and get them into a complete remission and minimize the risk of further renal dysfunction. Now, what about the type of transplant, which is something else we asked here? Yeah, I mean, I think it looks like the choices then in terms of if you were going to proceed on with a transplant, what would you choose? It looks like 70% of the clinical investigators would have done a single transplant with a second if failure to achieve that benchmark a response, whether it's a VGPR or a CR. About 20% would have done a single transplant 
And it looks like very few people would have gone on with an allogeneic transplant, which I think is the subject of a current ongoing or completed clinical trial. And I agree that would not certainly have been my first choice as a treatment approach for these patients. Chuck, any comments? Yes. I don't think you have to commit to a single or tandem autotransplant right up front. You can see what sort of response you get. If it's very good, you could delay the second transplant. If it's intermediate, you do get some mileage out of it and you feel you've help the patient, you might go with the tandem right at that point. I don't think you have to feel that you need to make that decision right at that junction. Let's talk about the preferences that people have in terms of selecting for induction therapy prior to transplant. We present three different age groups with and without adverse cytogenetics. So, Sagar, can you kind of take us through how people responded to that? Yeah. I think here the real question is there were singlets or doublets, essentially, that were asked, lenalidomide with DEX, thalidomide with DEX, bortezomib with DEX, BTD, RVD, VAD, the PAD regimen, which is bortezomib with adriamycin, bortezomib doxol, and then others braced on age, meaning standard risk, so 55, 70, and 75 with standard risk, or 55, 70, and 75 with high-risk abnormalities was really the crux of the question. I think it's certainly very interesting that in the younger patients, it looks like about a third of the clinical investigators chose the RVD regimen, and another third chose lenalidomide and dexamethasone. If you look among the community oncologist, it was a little bit more evenly spread among the different choices there. And I think for a young patient with standard risk disease, what you're seeing is that there is no one best regimen. And so I think it's almost dealer's choice. And that's often what I'll say when I talk to a referring physician on the phone, that I think there are three or four reasonable upfront induction regimens for the average patient. And whatever you're comfortable using, use that, just as we say in oncology in general. I have to say, I was a little bit surprised. Now, we only had, I think, around 20. We'll have actually 24 investigators here. But maybe it's just the investigators I've been talking to, like you, for example. But I had the feeling that all the investigators were using RVD, and yet actually a substantial number are not. Yeah. With those kinds of numbers, I mean, when I looked at it, I don't know how much extra toxicity you think this brings to the table compared to RD. Obviously, now you're getting an IV, et cetera. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think, again, there is a fair amount of debate here, and it's sort of the cure versus control camp. I think the control camp favors the lenalidomide dexamethasone approach. The more in favor of the cure approach would go with the triple therapy, again, for a standard risk patient. I think it's hard to make a case one way or the other. I think they're all pretty reasonable. I think just use whatever you're comfortable with. What do we know about the side effects and toxicity of, say, RVD as opposed to RD? Well, I think there are certainly a couple differences. The first, obviously, is that the patient has to come in more frequently, and there is a higher risk of neuropathy with RVD than there is with lenalidomide and dexamethasone alone. So I think that's probably the biggest issue overall is risk for neuropathy and patient convenience. I think those are probably the two features that go one way or the other. I mean, I think if you compare head-to-head and look at depth of response, the triplets clearly dwarf the doublets, no matter how you look at it, in terms of depth of VGPR and CRs and things like that. So I think there are differences there. Again, you can argue that that may not be as important for a standard risk patient. I mean, it's interesting, Chuck, when you think about it, you look at these numbers for practicing oncologists and fellows, and you can make an argument that you go to five different docs, you may very well get five different answers. Yes, absolutely. Chuck? I would agree. You know, I think for an older standard risk patient, I would even consider melphalan in the mix. 
I don't think it's unreasonable if an individual isn't a candidate. You've absolutely ruled out doing a transplant using melphalan as part of a triplet. Certainly is very active and something to consider. I think you're right, and I think that should have been in the question for the patients older than 75, maybe even for the patients older than 70, would have been to give them an MPT or an MPB choice. I agree. Now, we actually ask the issue of preferred initial therapy for non-transplant candidates, and I think we asked this issue of what the top three choices are that people are used. Sagar, can you comment on the data here? Yeah, I think this was a question over what are the top three preferred systemic regimens for a patient with active disease who's not potentially a candidate for high-dose therapy and transplant. And I think if you look among the clinical investigators, 70% said lenalidomide and low-dose DEX, 55% said MPV, and another 50% said MPT. There was about a third that still voted for MP and a few for bortezomib DEX or MPR. I think if you look at the practicing oncologist, again, the data is actually spread out pretty evenly. I think about 40% liked lenalidomide and low-dose DEX, similar to the fellows. Another third liked MPV, about half liked MPT. So I think the biggest discordance that I see between this is a higher fraction of the clinical investigators using lenalidomide and low-dose DEX for the older non-transplant eligible patient. But otherwise, it looks like there's just a pretty even split between either MPV or MPT or even a few people using MPR. Any comments, Chuck? No, I just think it's important to realize that in some ways, for a period of time, we stopped using melphalan. It just wasn't really considered. We were using thalidomide with decadron and then, of course, lenalidomide with decadron. But I think it's had a little bit of a resurgence, you know, in an effort to use triplets and, you know, incorporate more agents. I think we're using a lot more melphalan than we had in the past, particularly for low risk or older patients, I think it's a very reasonable thing to do. Yeah. If I can add just one quick comment here, I think that the use of lenalidomide and dexamethasone in this older patient population is really based on the survival data that's been looked at from the ECOG trial. For older patients, lenalidomide, low-dose dex, the survival at three years and five years actually looks very, very encouraging, and I think it's nice data. What I think that we need to be cautious that we don't do is fall into the trap that we fell into with thalidomide and dexamethasone, which is that Thaldex essentially eclipsed MP five or six years ago for induction, even for older non-transplant-eligible patients. And what we now know from the Austrian myeloma group study, the Central European study, is that MP is actually superior to Thaldex. And so I think we need these trials that really prove to us that RD is better than some of the other treatments that we have available, or at least equivalent. And I think it will be. I'm in that camp that believes it's a good regimen. But I think we have to do the studies to really prove it. Let's talk about the issue of dosing of dexamethasone. Sagar, can you go through that? So I think another question that comes up over and over again, and actually I get emails from some of our local referring docs as well when they ask, well, what do I want to do or what would I treat this patient with? And when I say DEX, they say, well, you guys keep changing your mind every week. What's the DEX dose we're using this week? And I think that you can see that a lot of this came about again on the basis of the ECOG trial. And I think you can see from this question, which is when you use a DEX-containing regimen, which dose do you use? Low dose, meaning 40 milligrams once a week, High dose, meaning the standard Alexanian, 40 on days 1 through 4, 9 through 12, and 17 through 20. Answer C, really, which was it depends on the regimen, which actually I think is a very important question to ask because 
There may be different dex doses depending upon the regimen that you're using. And as you can see, I think the practicing oncologists have really adopted the low-dose weekly dexamethasone. 82% said they did that. The fellows were somewhere in between at 60, and the clinical investigators were about 55%. I think if you look at the it-depends-on-the-regimen choice, the clinical investigators were about half of them said it sort of depends on the regimens, whereas 24% of fellows and 8% of practicing oncologists said that that's what they would do. I think if you break it down into the choice of regimen, you look at lenalidomide, 85 and 89% of investigators and oncologists said they would use low-dose dexamethasone. If you look at it with thalidomide, 75% and 85% said they would use low-dose dexamethasone. If you look at it with bortezomib, it looks like it's about 50% for clinical investigators compared to 79% for community oncologists that would use the low-dose dex, again, suggesting there may be a discrimination between the regimen that you're using and the dose of dexamethasone that's being used in that context. How do you yourself approach this in your practice? Yeah, for me, it really is based on a number of features. I will tell you that I think that if you use combinations, you're less likely to need as much high-dose dex. If there are patients that are fit and have high tumor burden and need a quick response, I use high-dose dexamethasone. I believe that lenalidomide and high-dose dexamethasone is safe and reasonable in the right patient population. And the older patient population where the difference in survival from the ECOG trial was most different, was most marked, is not the average patient population that I would consider DEX eligible for anyway. So I think that in many ways the ECOG trial has shown us what the Europeans published five years ago, that high-dose DEX in an older patient population is simply not tolerable. In the younger patient population, if you need it, I think it's okay to use it. Chuck? Yes, I would agree. I think that the toxicities in older people sort of precludes using the standard days one through four, eight through 11, and such. I don't know if you can necessarily extrapolate that there may be less toxicity using the low-dose dexamethasone. And we think it's probably class effect, and it probably would be the right thing to do. But again, I agree, in a younger patient population who needs a rapid response, I would not shy away from using the high-dose dexamethasone schedule. What are the problems that you see when you use high-dose dex, particularly in older patients, Sagar? Well, you know, I think fatigue is pretty profound in those patients, weakness, generalized weakness, can't get out of bed, those kinds of things. And we know that the hip and shoulder muscles are most sensitive to high-dose dex in terms of weakness. Interestingly, in the older patient population, I've seen weight loss. And I know typically we see weight gain with steroids. But I've had a number of patients who lost 10 and 15 pounds in the first cycle of therapy associated with the high-dose dexamethasone. Infections, I don't think, are that much more prevalent, especially if you use prophylaxis. So I'm not sure that's a big... I think it's really just performance status really takes a hit in the older patients. Chuck? My comment with lenalidomide would be that a lot of these individuals have significant cytopenias, and that's a source of problem. You know, we have to cut back... And it causes me concern when they come in with low platelet counts. I have to hold therapy or dose reduce. Let's talk about the issue of maintenance. Sagar, can you go through the next case? This is a 55-year-old gentleman who undergoes induction therapy with RBD for ISS stage 3 myeloma. After two cycles, the patient achieved a partial response but has developed grade 2 sensory peripheral neuropathy, interfering with the activities of daily living. So at this point, then, the question becomes, what would you most likely recommend for this patient who has achieved a partial response following initial induction therapy? And so the choices are to encourage the patient to continue the current dose for two additional cycles to maximize the response prior to a transplant, 
reduce the dose of bortezomib and continue triple therapy for at least two more cycles, discontinue bortezomib but continue the lenalidomide and the dex for two more cycles, or discontinue induction and proceed immediately to stem cell mobilization and transplant. And I think it's important, again, to identify that this is not just a garden-variety patient. This is potentially a high-risk myeloma patient. And if you look, the answers between the three groups actually are quite similar. About 60% in the investigator group, 50% of the practicing oncologists, and 56% of fellows all said they would discontinue the bortezomib and continue lenalidomide and dexamethasone for at least two more cycles. Another third of each of the groups suggested they would reduce the dose of bortezomib and continue for at least two more cycles, and a very small number of docs actually said they would discontinue and go straight to stem cell collection. I think that this is actually a very practical and important question because this happens in the real world. Patients do develop neuropathy from RVD, and this is somebody that I would probably personally favor reducing the dose of bortezomib, allowing that neuropathy to improve, and then continuing on for an additional two cycles of therapy to give the patient a chance to respond. I think if you pick the last choice, which is taking them immediately onto stem cell transplant, you may not have had exactly the maximum mileage that you want to get out of some of those drugs. And I think that if you discontinue the bortezomib and use lenalidomide and dexamethasone alone, it certainly is a reasonable choice and will hopefully improve the overall peripheral neuropathy. But I think you lose some of that synergy that you may get by adding bortezomib with an IMID. Chuck, any comments? Yes. Dating back to the early approval of bortezomib, Many of the patients were just treated with, you know, single agent or in combination with steroids, and we had a dose reduce. And even at lower doses, I was very impressed with the response rates we were seeing. I would ask Sagar if he feels it's a real steep dose response for bortezomib, because I think even at low dose, I would agree there is the synergy, and we still see very nice responses. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think that's a good point. And in the relapsed refractory RVD, the dose of bortezomib is one per meter squared. So I think there's certainly a reason to try and allow a patient to improve. I think that's the key message is that they've had a significant neuropathy. You need to treat that and allow it to improve before you reinitiate. But I agree, I would continue on with a lower dose of bortezomib in this patient. You know, it's kind of interesting, too, if you look at when we ask people, have you used RVD? Actually, more than half of the practicing docs and fellows, almost two-thirds, had not had any experience whatsoever with it. Have you used it, Chuck? Yes, I have. I've used it in a couple patients. And again, it's really very active. I mean, very dramatic responses. I think what you're seeing, Neil, is that there's a lot of choice. And I call induction therapy for myeloma the confusing collection of consonants because it's hard to know what the best right answer is. Is it VTD? Is it RD? Is it VD? Is it Velcade and liposomal doxorubicin? I think the choices are really quite large, and I don't think we have enough data to say outright this is the best answer. What I think we have enough data to say is that there are things that are not the right answers. And to me, that's an easier question to answer. VAD, I think, is essentially dead. DEX alone, in my mind, I think is essentially dead. And personally, I think Thaldex is dead. I think you don't get enough mileage out of that to feel like it's a reasonable approach, but that's opinion. What's interesting, too, that when we asked, we had an extensive piece in here about educational interest. And we actually asked people to compare their interest educationally in myeloma as opposed to like breast and colon cancer. And interestingly, even though they docs in practice and fellows obviously see a lot more solid tumors, their interest levels equivalent, 
if not greater in myeloma. I think people are aware that even though they don't see patients as often as they do with these other tumors, that there's some major changes going on. I would agree with that. And it's really evolving. Again, you know, if you look at how we were managing multiple myeloma two years ago, it's very different at present, and it may be significantly different in two years. I think that this is really evolving. I mean, certainly with the addition of Avastin, breast cancer is changing a bit, and also a couple years ago for colon cancer. But multiple myeloma, again, is sort of the new breast cancer. It's kind of interesting, too, because, you know, myeloma is kind of like a bunch of tumors that we see educationally from the perspective of, obviously, most docs seeing a lot less of than the more common solid tumors. But yet there's several of them several less common situations where you're seeing a complete change in how people view it. For example, renal cell. People don't see that many cases of it, but yet, I mean, the biology, the treatment, the algorithms, you think about renal cell five years ago or HCC five years ago, there's really nothing to say. So it really is a challenge for oncologists right now to keep up with this. Also, the prevalence of multiple myeloma is increasing as the patient's survival is better than it had been. You know, we're seeing these patients come back to our practice for longer periods of time. So I think we are seeing more of these patients as we're seeing the same patients for longer periods of time. So let's go to the next case, Sagar. Can you kind of take us through this? So this next case is a 55-year-old gentleman who presents with fatigue and anemia with a hemoglobin of 9, total protein of 7.7, calcium and creatinine were normal, Serum protein electrophoresis shows an IgG kappa pair protein with an M spike of about 2.2 grams per deciliter with a total IgG level of about 3,000 and suppression of the IgM and IgA. The beta-2 microglobulin was 3.9 in this patient and a bone marrow had about 32% infiltration of plasma cells. Skeletal survey showed osteopenia with no obvious lytic disease. Fish and cytogenetics on this patient were normal. This is a patient who underwent induction therapy with VTD, followed by a single cycle of stem cell transplant, is doing quite well now, has a hemoglobin of 13, a creatinine of 1.1, and essentially is in a CR with no detectable protein and a bone marrow plasma cytosis of less than 5%. So the question then becomes, what is the approach to post-transplant maintenance for this patient? And the options are surveillance only, bisphosphonates alone, steroids alone, lenalidomide or thalidomide with steroids and either with or without bisphosphonates, lenalidomide alone with or without bisphosphonates, thalidomide alone, or bortezomib thalidomide with or without bisphosphonates. What is really quite striking to me is looking at this case that 65% of the clinical investigators would opt for surveillance only in this patient compared to 31% of the practicing oncologists and about 42% of the fellows. I think if you look at the next question down, which is bisphosphonates alone, 25%, 30%, and 34% were the numbers for the investigators versus the oncologists versus the fellows, suggesting that about a quarter to a third of all of them would treat with bisphosphonates alone. There were a few folks that wanted to use thalidomide alone. Very, very few wanted to use bortezomib, and about 15% of the practicing oncologists favored a lenalidomide maintenance with or without bisphosphonates or with or without corticosteroids. So I think what you're seeing is, again, an area of great ambiguity. What do you do for the patient who is in CR after a transplant, and do you offer the maintenance therapy? And I think you're seeing among the clinical investigators that the answer is no. And my sense is the reason the answer is no is based on the French data, the IFM trial, 
randomizing patients to bisphosphonates, bisphosphonates with thalidomide, or no maintenance therapy at all. And in that group, the patients who'd achieved a CR gained no benefit from the use of maintenance therapy. Patients that had not achieved a CR did gain benefit from maintenance thalidomide. There did not appear to be a major impact of bisphosphonates in terms of skeletal-related events or progression-free survival. So I think that's why you're seeing perhaps a little bit of discordance between the two groups there. Interestingly enough, my personal reaction to this would have been to go with bisphosphonates. And again, we usually treat patients with bisphosphonates for about a year post-transplant and then check bone mineral density to see whether they still have ongoing osteopenia. But I think that certainly, as you're seeing, this is a debatable point. Chuck? I'd agree. I know the data doesn't necessarily support the routine use of bisphosphonates. Still, we've seen recent data come out showing that it's very beneficial in breast cancer. I feel comfortable continuing my patients on bisphosphonates. I cut back on the frequency. I might go to every two months and every three months. And although I don't necessarily have data to support it, I'm just a bit reluctant to totally stop the bisphosphonates. I think the role of maintenance is up in the air, and I don't use it routinely. If I have a patient with a rising paraprotein after a transplant, I will try several maneuvers, and I think it could be a benefit. I have several patients on maintenance therapy who are two, three years out. Having been put on the maintenance in the setting of a rising paraprotein, they've had stable disease. It's absolutely remarkable. So the last thing I want to ask both of you is now that we've had a chance to talk about some of the data that we've gotten here and understanding this is the first time we've done this in myeloma, we found when we did these in other tumors, it took us a few surveys to really start to figure out how to ask things and position things, et cetera. But I'm curious, Sagar, what you think about what we have here candidly. I mean, to be honest with you, I kind of got the feeling from Dr. Vassol that he saw this more, maybe he actually said, I think this would be more of interest to pharmaceutical companies than anybody else. And I kind of was thinking, hmm, is it really relevant to the scientific community, you know, how people are actually being treated? What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is in lymphoma, there's actually this thing, lymphocare, I think it's called. Right, right. And that actually is very useful information. I think that this kind of information is important because it's one thing for a clinical study to document the efficacy or toxicity of a given regimen or combination, but I think it's more important to see what is being done in the real world and what's being done in the community because that's where the rubber hits the road. And it doesn't matter if what is done in the ivory towers is great if it's not being adopted because it's too toxic or it's got too many side effects or people don't like it. So I find this very useful information, and I think it's hard to know what to do with this in isolation, because right now that's where it stands. It's a data set at a given snapshot at a given point. But I think as more time elapses, we might start to be able to understand how best to use this baseline information to compare with other approaches. Again, that's what we've seen, particularly in breast cancer, which is the first one that we did, that we started to really understand how people react to data and what the variables are. But I guess another perspective, Chuck, would be, you know, we're still, even though there are exciting advances, this still is a very devastating disease. And, you know, does it really matter which one of these approaches people take? Are they all going to end up the same way? Or are these realistically important differences? I think this data is of potential great use for doctors, particularly where you see a discrepancy between the clinical investigator and the community oncologist. I mean, realize that most patients are treated out in the community. And where you see differences in patterns of care, I think there's got to be a reason for that, and it pertains to education. There may be important advances, 
for instance, using fish at baseline to stratify the patient's risk and come up with a treatment strategy that the community oncologist may be less tuned into. So I think comparing differences in patterns of care at a given point in time between investigators and practicing doctors, I think looking at differences is a function of time, how things are changing. I think this is very, very valuable. You know, Sagar, too, I think about the issue of adaptation of tissue biomarkers. And we were talking before about staging and Mm -hmm. fish, et cetera. And I do recall that, you know, for example, when Oncotype came out in breast cancer, the first couple years, there was actually most people in practice weren't even using it. Right. The investigators were very struck by it. But I don't know, sometimes I think maybe the docs in practice have more of a jaundiced eye and they want to wait a little bit before they change things. Any thoughts about that? Well, I think if there's a difference in the way a certain question is observed, the first question that needs to come up is, is there an educational reason why? The second is, is there a justification for doing the test? And I think it took Oncotype DX a few years to prove that their data really did make a difference and that you could stratify patients and treatment choices based on that. I think we're in that mode now. I don't think we have the justification to clearly say you should do one treatment over another. I think that we're getting there. I think we're trying to identify the poor, intermediate, and high-risk cytogenetics just like they have in AML. And I think it's an evolving practice, but I think part of starting to do that is for everybody to be on the same playing field, meaning everybody gets the data. And it's not just what paper X tells you. It's when I had this patient or I had 10 of these patients, they acted just like they did in paper X. And it takes time to acquire that kind of experience. Chuck? I would clearly echo that. I think that this information clearly changes the way we manage patients, how we treat them. And in the past, we used to use melphalan and prednisone for all comers. And we've seen virtually, particularly in multiple myeloma, a real explosion just over the last couple of years. I think this is of great interest and a very practical importance for individuals like myself in the community. 